I wanted to give an explanation of why during Advent we are talking about the crucifixion. <laughs> and so I, I do recognize that usually when people talk about crucifixion, it, it, it's typically around Easter um, because that is when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And as I've been thinking, well, I wanted to finish the Gospel of Mark, and I thought it'd be neat to finish it during Christmas. And part of the reason why I gave it this thought is because Christmas always has this emphasis, and I, again, it's meant to, this emphasis on the birth of Jesus. And yet when you look at the Gospels, particularly uh, the last four or five chapters, the last four or five chapters of every Gospel has this drawn-out emphasis upon Jesus' crucifixion. And so when you look at the weighting of the number of words that are dedicated to the death of Jesus, it far outweighs the number of words dedicated to his birth. And so when we think about Advent, which means coming, I don't think we need to just think about baby Jesus. I know there's, some, there's something very pleasant about thinking about baby Jesus. And yet, as Natalie prayed, Advent, the first Advent, is about both his, not just his birth, but also his life and his death, and also includes his resurrection. And so that's why we have this kind of emphasis, is because when we celebrate Christmas, it is ultimately about Jesus, not just his birth, but his entire life, the fact that he became the Word incarnate. And as we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, we celebrate the newborn king, but we celebrate his kingship. And what I wanted to do is read something about the identity of a king. And I want to start by reading from 1 Samuel chapter 8. If you have your Bibles or you can open up in your Bible app, 1 Samuel chapter 8. I don't think I've explained this before, but when you read the Bible, there's different translations. And generally speaking, in most contexts, in our church, we use the English Standard Version, ESV. However, at various points in time, I may use other translations, and that's okay. There is no sacred translation. Some of you may be offended by that. So there is no, there is no sacred translation. We, we have a translation of the text. It was originally written in both Hebrew and Greek. And so we do our best to interpret the words based on a translation. And so I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Verse 10. This is the prophet Samuel's words. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And this is the nation of Israel asking for a king. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves." And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So I want to review a couple things that I just read. 
and I, I want to summarize them. Number one, the king will appoint soldiers and have others beaten at his whim. The king will take the best of the vineyards, and he and his entourage will enjoy the wine and the olives. The king will take the tenth of your grain and give it to his officers. The king will exercise power over you, that's Israel, and enslave you. And then I also want you to notice, and this is kind of a, a joke with, with some people in our church, is uh, he will also draft the women to become perfumers and bakers. Like, you will cook, right? You will cook. I'm not sure what a perfumer is, but there, there is going to be a draft of soldiers, and there's going to be a draft of perfumers and cooks, and you don't get to choose. Because the essence of being a king is that you don't get to choose. The king chooses. The king has first choice, the king has last choice, and the king has all the choices in between. And so when you have a king, your choice as being rule, as being as the citizens is irrelevant because you don't get a say in anything. And I think this is difficult for us to understand because of the, the idea, because we don't have a king in our country, right? And we, this is difficult for us to understand because everything in the ancient Near East was predicated on this idea of authority, okay, authority. And what authority means is the ability to tell other people what they're supposed to do. And nowadays, we don't like people telling us what to do. And in, in many of our institutions are under attack because we don't trust any institution to tell us what to do. And that's why something like formal membership is so countercultural, because it involves submitting to a leadership, which means we, you allow leaders to tell you what to do. And like I said, we don't have this idea of a king. In fact, this country was founded on the premise that we wouldn't have a king. Because the idea of a king, again, is that all this power is concentrated into one person. It's like death wish coffee, you know what I mean? It's like super, super potent. So you have the judicial, legislative, and executive branches all in one person. There's no checks and balances. They get absolute, the king gets absolute power. And the whole reason we have executive, judicial, and legislative branches and four-year terms is we want to dilute as much as possible the power of the president because we don't want him to be a king. We are very much against this idea of being a king. And, and, and part of it may be an influence of this passage, because again, when you have a king, you don't get to choose. And I want you to notice one more thing in this passage, that when you're the king, you are the actor. And when I say that, I mean that actor in the sense of the verb. The king is the one who does everything. He will take, he will appoint, he will exercise power, he does this, he does that, right? The king does that. And I, so I want you to keep that in mind as I read today's passage. Because chapter 15 of Mark, the phrase king of the Jews appears five times. And in the entire gospel of Mark, it only appears five times. So every occurrence of the term king of the Jews happens in Mark chapter 15. This, and three times in the passage we're going to read. And so... Would you read along me? Would you read with me? You can read quietly, and I'll read these passages. Mark chapter 15. I'm going to read from verse 16 to verse 32. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. 
And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who had destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Okay, notice those three occurrences of King of the Jews. 14, uh, 18, verse 18, when the soldiers call him Hail, King of the Jews. The inscription in verse 26, King of the Jews. And then the, uh, the chief priest with the scribes say, King of Israel, which is the same idea, King of the Jews. So those three references, King of the Jews. And the next thing I want you to notice is that in almost every verse of the passage that I read, Jesus, the King of the Jews, is not the actor. He is acted upon. They put on a crown of thorns, they clothe him in a purple cloak, they salute him, they strike him, they spit on him, they mock him, they strip him, they crucify him, they compel someone else, they bring him to a place. The one thing he does do is he turns down the wine, and we will talk about that. Again, they crucify him, they divide his garments, they deride him, they insult him. Everything in this passage is acted upon Jesus. It is the exact opposite of what a king's supposed to do, which is to decide for himself and to, tell every, to give commands to everyone else, but everything is subjected to him. It's subjected on Jesus. There's another thing that I want you to notice in verses 16 through 20. It says, they called together the whole battalion. And I think in many of your Bibles, it says a battalion could be up to 600 men or a cohort, cohort could be 480. And it seems like an absurd amount of guys to beat up on one, one person. Like having 400 guys beat up on one person seems a little bit absurd. And so what I think is important as part of the context is that this was probably an auxiliary cohort. An auxiliary cohort means they probably weren't all Roman soldiers. There were probably soldiers who were conscripted from all the armies, all the uh, peoples that the Roman Empire had conquered. And so what that means is in the, this auxiliary cohort that were beating, beating up Jesus, it was probably Greek-speaking Syrians. It probably did include Jews. It probably included Samaritans, and of course, the officers were probably Roman. So you had various ethnicities of people who were beating Jesus. Now, why do I bring that up? Why do I bring that up? I think this is important, and I haven't talked about this as we've gone through the course of the crucifixion accounts, but throughout history, people have hated the Jews. Kanye West is just the most recent iteration, right? People have hated on the Jews for a bunch of different reasons, for all kinds of reasons. And one of the biggest reasons, one of the primary reasons, especially as Christians hate the Jews, is because they view the Jews as Jesus 
killers, right? They view the nation of Israel as killing Jesus. Never mind that Jesus himself was Jewish, okay? But they view, they view uh, Jews as being Jesus killers, and that's the reason why, well, maybe one reason why people have this kind of inordinate hatred towards Jewish people. But I want you to notice that one of the things I think Mark goes out of his way, and you see in the rest of the Gospels as well, is to spread the blame for the death of Jesus, is to recognize it was not just, it was not just the Jews who looked, um, who looked against Jesus. It was, it was also Pilate and the crowd and this group of mixed ethnicity, all, all kinds of ethnicity soldiers that were against Jesus. Everyone hated on him. Everyone hated on him. And so I think that's important because we need to recognize as we read this text, Mark is not trying to implicate the Jews in any way. He's not trying to say, hey, you know what? We need to center our hatred on this group of people. And that actually goes against the message that Jesus was preaching and stood for. So there is this, we need to be very careful as we read this to recognize everyone participated in Jesus' death, including his disciples, including Pilate, including, Rome, including Romans, and people of other ethnicities. And that's true for us today. We are all complicit. We all participate in Jesus' death. Now, I know one emphasis when we read this text is also to focus on what we see as possible heroes. Because Jesus doesn't do anything, right? Jesus, everything is acted upon him. And so one person that you can highlight as a possible hero is in verse 21. And it says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. They found a guy named Simon to carry the cross. And, a lot, and Simon is often praised because he, we, we imagine that he chose to carry the cross. But what it says here is it doesn't, that he didn't choose. He didn't choose to carry the cross. It says they compelled, okay? They compelled a passerby. They forced him to choose, okay? They forced him to choose. And I think what well, we need to recognize that in our culture, we value choice and autonomy so much. We love to be able to have the freedom to choose. It's arguably the highest value in our culture, the ability to choose. In fact, there's a movement called the uh, financial independence movement. Right? And in the financial independence movement, the whole premise of that is that you get to make enough money so that you don't have to work, so that you can choose to do whatever you want. Right? Because again, autonomy is the highest value. We worship the freedom to choose. And I, I have a personal example from my own life. Um, I am so proud, not in a good way, but I'm so proud of the fact that I was not laid off from my tech job and wasn't forced to go into ministry. I love to tell people that um, I freely chose it. I chose to leave that job. And yet, there is an honor in being chosen. There is an honor in being, um, in being chosen by someone else, and you didn't get any place in it. And what we see is, I do think Simon is a kind of hero, but not because he chose, but because he was chosen. And there is an honor as a Christian that you were chosen to be a child of his. You were chosen as a son and daughter of God, because we love to emphasize how much we chose, but at the end of the day, God chose you. And God chose his son to suffer. And God chose Simon to carry this cross. And so in a world that worships choice and autonomy, there is an honor and a privilege in being chosen and an honor and a privilege even more specifically to suffer. 
because you've been chosen to suffer alongside with Jesus. And so there's this myth that Jesus, in this sense, um, and I don't know that it's a popular myth, but you could say, hey, you know what? Jesus must have been a victim in this case because he was suffering and everything was acted upon him. And yet, as I've stated, there is a glory and an honor in being dishonored, a glory in being able to suffer. But the first thing that I want to point out is this is an opposite kind of king. Usually a king tells other people what to do, but this king is led and beaten, and people tell him what he's supposed to do. And so let me talk about that reality. My second point is about the reality of the obedient king. There is an irony of, throughout this passage, there's all kinds of irony. And one of the ironies that you see is this idea of what it means to be a king. And they put him in a purple cloak to represent royal garments. They give him a crown, but it's of thorns. They give him a throne, but it's made of wood, and he's stapled to it. They give him an inscription on the throne, and it says king of the Jews, but it's obviously ironic. And they also give him a scepter, and it's a reed, and they hit him with it. And so everything in this passage is meant to indicate to us he's supposed to be a king, but he's not. And so the beauty and tragedy of this moment is that there's so much irony in looking at this is supposed to be a king, but he subverts and defies any expectation of what a king is like. And the question is, why? Why is that the case? And in this one moment, I think it's in verse, it's in verse 23, it says that Jesus is given the opportunity to drink wine and he turns it down. And I know we study this passage earlier in our life groups, and I, and I think one of the, the, the commentaries often say the reason why Jesus refused to drink of the wine is because he wanted to have full consciousness in his suffering. He wanted to fully embrace and experience pain. Um, and I think I even said that in our leaders' meeting ahead of time. I don't know. I don't actually know. It's, it's speculation. And as part of our leaders' time, I think my dad shared this. He said, you know what? We don't, we don't exactly know but we also recognize back in the Garden of Gethsemane, what Jesus prays is he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he's speaking to God the Father. And so I think there's a reality of Jesus in this moment where, where everything is acted upon him, that he chose, to be, he chose this path. And that if he chooses not to drink the wine, it's because he's choosing to suffer and he's choosing to do so out of obedience. Because this is what differentiates Jesus from being a victim is that a victim doesn't necessarily suffer for a reason. And today, um, we have a victimhood culture where in the surrender of power, it's like a a way to to gain and access power. But Jesus, in surrendering power, does it for a very specific reason. He surrenders power and is acted upon so that it has a greater purpose of saving and rescuing others. And so the calling for us as Christians is that you don't just behave as a victim because in this life, you're going to suffer. But that in your suffering, it allows, in 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 suffering and obeying God, it allows for other people to be saved and other people to be helped. Your suffering always has a greater purpose. And so the question is then what, you know, what's going on? Like, what does this mean for us? Well, let me examine one more, a couple last verses from this section. In verse 29, it says, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Because the majesty of a king 
is that the king has power to rebuild the temple. The, t- the king can do that. The king can destroy the temple and the king can rebuild it. And yet Jesus is this obedient king where he recognizes he doesn't have to do anything at this point. He is choosing obedience. He is choosing suffering and humiliation. And then in 31, the chief priests and scribes also mock him. And they say this ironic statement that he saved others, he cannot save himself. He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And so we also recognize there's an irony here because the chief priests and scribes are the ones who wanted to crucify, in the, in the, crucify him in the first place, and they're the ones that stood against him. And so I think there's a tremendous irony here because they're saying that if Jesus came down now off that cross, they would believe, but they have no intention of believing, and it's meant to be ironic. And the other, the other irony here is that Jesus did indeed save others, and he is choosing at this point not to save himself in order to save all of humanity. And so there is a privilege in him being able to suffer and also to face humiliation because it means greater salva- the, the salvation of all who believe in him. And so what does this mean for us? How do we translate this for us? Now, the irony of what these, the chief priests and scribes are saying is that it's, 90, it's 80% true, but it's always hard to find that 20%, um, that the 20% that's a lie. Because Jesus, again, is choosing not to save himself so that he can save others. And Jesus, at this point, suffers the weight of humanity's sin, and he bears that consequence of sin into death. And death isn't just about physical non-existence. It also means separation. It also means isolation. And now this passage indicates it also means the loss of choice, the loss of agency, and most of all, honor. That death means humiliation. And Jesus bears all the dishonor so that the shame and dishonor we deserve would go unto him. And on on all the honor and privilege and worth and value that he deserved gets to go to us. And the humiliation of the cross, and in the humiliation of the cross, he defeats death. And so the way this translates into our own lives, and I've been thinking about this idea of Advent, right? And what it means to proclaim the gospel is gospel proclamation isn't just about speaking words. It can never just be about speaking words. And some of you I know, I know in Romans 1, for instance, it says the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. I get it, I get it. That when we communicate the gospel, it is important to speak words. And yet the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, the reality of the advent, is that there is something about the gospel that is about that is that is incarnation. Okay? That is incarnation. Where the gospel permeates our being so that it's not just the sounds coming out of our mouth, but it is actually embodying the suffering of Jesus. It is actually living that out. Because when people look at us, when people look at you as a Christian, the whole idea of you being a Christian is that people can see Jesus in you. And that when you suffer on behalf of others, that people don't just see you, they see Christ suffering in you. And that's the beauty of what it means to be a Christian, is to be a little Christ. And that's the power of God at work within us. And so there's a power in being able to obey. And so what I'd like to 
what I'd like to close with is talking about what does this passage look like in terms of application. And so Mohammed and I, we, we, talk, about this, we talk about the sermon. We, practice, um, we do a sermon practice each week. And one of the, one of the questions we were asking ourselves, right, as we, as we think about application, if Jesus' crucifixion, we know it's real, so does that mean if an intruder breaks into your home, you don't have the right or you shouldn't defend yourself? You should just let yourself be taken advantage of. And I think that's not exactly the point here in the crucifixion, okay? It is good to actually defend yourself because there is the greater good of being able to protect your family, okay? So I think that's important. And also, I would say, it's not just about defying expectations, though it will always involve that. Everyone had expectations of what a king was, a king that lords over, that takes power and administers power and chooses and abuses other people, and Jesus performed the opposite of that. But it's not just about defying expectations. Now, I'll reference Kanye again. Kanye West defies expectations, but I think it's questionable. Even in the best, in, in the best possible interpretation, his method of defying expectations is a little strange, right? And doesn't seem to have very positive consequences. And so the idea of obedience, right? Because ultimately, what Jesus was demonstrating by going to the cross was obedience to the Father was following the will of the Father. And when you obey, when Jesus was obeying the will of the Father, that could look a couple different ways. At the end of his life, it meant going to the cross and being silent, but throughout the rest of his ministry, it meant speaking up and being assertive. And so it requires wisdom. We need wisdom from the Spirit of God to know what obedience looks like in a given situation. And the way that you discern that is what is loving to other people and what is loving to God. And I just want to recognize that is not easy to discern. And I know sometimes people complain about my sermons, and I, and I actually like gladly receive it. He's like, there wasn't a really specific call to action. Like, what exactly are we supposed to do? And I think this is one of those passages where it's difficult to tell what exactly you're supposed to do, because I'm not going to say, hey, you should go out there and get crucified. Right? That's not exactly what I'm trying to say. And so let me give you a couple different things to think about um, for this coming month. You're going to be spending time with family, presumably, in this coming month. And a lot of people look at this time with family probably with a little bit of stress and anxiety. There's at least some stress and anxiety because everyone has a family member that is just a little bit uncomfortable to be around and whom you experience a little bit kind of like as an attack. They ask you questions about, let's say, your weight and, you know, all, you know, all these different things that family members can ask, right? And, and we, you can experience that as an accusation, right? And there can be a lot of pressure and anxiety that goes with that. And I think I would give you a couple possibilities in how you respond, because in those moments where you feel accused by a family member, you may think to yourself, well, I'll just be silent the way Jesus was when he was beaten by the Roman battalion, okay? And I would say, yeah, that's possible, but I would just also say the, the people in your life, your family members, are probably not conspiring to kill you, okay? And if they are, they have not yet been successful, Okay. They have not yet been successful at trying to kill you. So maybe, you know, maybe what's happening in this passage does not exactly apply to you because you're not Jesus, you're not actually being crucified at that very moment. And yet, there is something significant about having an obedient spirit. Okay. An obedient spirit is about defying expectations in order for some greater good to happen, especially the good of the people that you're with. And so let me give you a couple of possibilities. Again, possibilities that you might be able to do in that moment when you experience an accusation or some attack from a family member. One, 
Perhaps you can speak up in encouragement. We talked about this in our life group. Perhaps you can speak up in encouragement of your family member. So if someone gives you advice, unsolicited advice in your family, does that ever happen to you guys? Do you ever get unsolicited? It's just Liz. Okay. Um, if you ever get unsolicited advice from a family member, then you can say, hey, thank you for caring for me. I appreciate that. I appreciate your care and concern about my life. Right? Because that, that, that is what, what that person is trying to do. They're trying to express their care and concern, maybe in a clumsy way, maybe by bringing up a sore point, but that's what the person's trying to do. Here's something else. You can change the subject to talk about the meaning of Christmas for yourself. And we call that like the gospel juke. You can, you can totally do a gospel juke, change the subject, and talk about the meaning of Christmas. I especially recommend that if that's like your last instinct. Okay? Because we all have certain instincts in those moments. And if that's not your instinct, I would just encourage you to kind of like press into something that you really wouldn't do. Um, some, a third thing, perhaps it'll be a, at the appropriate time you can share your sense of hurt um, when you experience that accusation. And again, for some of you are like, that's just not going to work. I don't want to do that. Could I just ask you to entertain that possibility because it's so opposite from your expectations, from what anyone would expect. And that might lead to a conversation about how people experience hurt. A last one, perhaps it is about being silent. Perhaps it is about not saying anything. Again, not because you're being crucified, but it, that it's okay just to not say anything and pray for that person in that moment and then pray for yourself that you don't have to internalize that person's accusations, that you have a worth that goes apart from what that person says and that you don't have to believe it. Okay, so I just gave you some options of how you can respond, and based on your personality and your context on the different relationships you have, you can maybe pick one of those. And certainly, you may have some responses that go outside of that. What I hope you would have, though, the thing above all else, is that you would have an obedient spirit to the obedient king. And so let me close by, by, reading, by reading this again. A normal king. Let's talk about what a normal king does, and let's talk about the king that we serve the king will appoint soldiers and have others beaten at his whim. The king will take the best of the vineyards and enjoy the wine and olives. The king will take the tenth of your grain and give it to his officers. The king will exercise power over you and enslave you. But we serve a different king, an obedient king. And this king lets soldiers beat him at their whim. This king refuses the best of the vineyards. This king is the grain given over to his disciples. This king surrenders power and follows others' orders. This king surrenders himself as the lamb to be sacrificed. That is the king whom we serve. That is our obedient king. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for Advent. Thank you that you came to embody the word and that the message and the messenger are one and the same. Thank you that you are the word become flesh and that you came to this earth to suffer on our behalf and that you are the obedient king, different from any other and worthy of our service. And so, Lord, would we embrace suffering? Would we embrace the pain in order that we could suffer on behalf of others just as you suffered for us? Thank you for your obedience on the cross. May we likewise obey you as you obeyed. In Jesus' name, amen.